If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Sweet tarts dared to combine sweet and tart. But we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new sweet tarts, gummies, fruity splits. A uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, we're discussing the history of blackface with Ayanna Thompson. Ayanna is a Regents Professor of English at Arizona State University, Director of the Arizona Center for Renaissance Studies, and former President of the Shakespeare Association of America. Her new book, Blackface, explores its long history, its influence on US race relations, and its legacy in the modern day. Asking the questions was Kev Lotchen, Deputy Editor of BBC History Revealed and Section Editor of History Extra. Please be aware that this podcast contains discussion of racial stereotypes as well as offensive language and racist slurs. Anna, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. It's so great to be here, Kev. Today we're talking about your book, Blackface, which you know obviously is about blackface and it's going to deal with some pretty weighty themes. But I wonder if I could start with situating our listeners a bit. So... What is blackface that would, in the context of this conversation? And what brought you to the place where you decided you wanted to write this book now? Yeah, so um, blackface is the application of any makeup or prosthetics. It might be masks, wigs, fake noses, etc., um, to make one appear to be of another race, usually um, to look uh, black. 
And uh, minstrelsy is a specific performance tradition that started in the 19th century. Um, But the reason that I wrote this book was because I found in the U.S. at least um, that when we talk about blackface, people want to treat it as if it is something from the way distant past and that it's totally gone and we don't have to deal with it anymore. And for me, what was particularly upsetting was that there were so many examples in the 21st century. Um, I joke in the book that you're as likely to come across a blackface performance on late night television in the 21st century as you are to come across an actor of color. And so I thought, wait, maybe maybe it's time to write a book that's real. It's not an academic book. It's a book for everyday readers that explores the long history of blackface and why it continues and how we can potentially make it stop. You mentioned it has that long history there. So How far back does it go? I mean, it's very famously linked with Shakespeare, but does it have a history before that as well? Yeah, we we do think it has um, a much older tradition. Um, We know that uh, blackface performances were used in uh, medieval plays, uh, religious plays, uh, when several devilish characters, when they would fall from grace... Um, they would be depicted as uh, having black faces after their fall. Um, but Robert Hornbeck, who's another uh, great scholar, um, has traced it back that there might also be classical traditions in which blackface was used in some uh, Greek and Roman plays. Uh, so it's it's an old history, um, but definitely kind of flourished in Shakespeare's lifetime when uh non-religious plays were first depicted in England. And these non-religious plays were exploring um, kind of the plethora of the world. (laughs) And uh, of course, this is part of, you know, the uh, age of exploration. And so we get lots of characters who are Africans and Moors and Turks and Indians, and they're all performed with the aid of, we think, bitumen, which is a kind of of oil, Um, probably some makeup, other uses of makeup. Um, There's definitely fake noses that were used on the Renaissance stage. Um, The famous Henry Peacham drawing of Titus Andronicus, which is the only contemporary drawing that was done when Shakespeare was writing plays. It's from 1595. We think that Peacham went to see a production of Titus Andronicus and went home and drew a picture and then wrote out some of the lines that he could remember. And Aaron the Moor, he clearly draws this character um, as having a short afro, so that looks like it's affixed with a headband, and um, perhaps gloves and stockings to make the character look black, and then a completely black face. So this is a bit of like kind of archival amazing uh, evidence to show that uh, Moors were depicted as looking very black on on the Renaissance stage. Um, A couple of different scholars, Jonathan Burton and Matthew Chapman, have tabulated how many characters of color were um, on the Renaissance stage. And their their tabulations, separate tabulations, go from anywhere from 50 to 75 
characters of color on the Renaissance stage. So you think that the tiring houses, that's the where the costumes were kept and, and where the actors um, dressed for their roles, the tiring houses must have been replete with makeup and wigs and noses and everything to create these um, different these different uh, racial characters. That is absolutely astounding figure, the 50 or 70 characters. Isn't that amazing? Like in a span of of 50 years, these are the first, you know, non-religious plays in England. And what did they put on the, their stages was people of different races. At that point, I mean, you mentioned this use of racial prosthetics to kind of like portray these characters. At that time, do we know if there's any intent there? Is that mostly towards the storytelling side of it? Or is that already going into caricature? Well, I mean, I think it's probably a bit of both. I think it's how do you depict something that is completely foreign and unknown to you and to your audience? Um, Although uh, the new research, the new archival research, and by the recently deceased Imtiaz Habib, shows that... um, Renaissance England and Renaissance London in particular was much more diverse than we thought. So when I was growing up and I took a Shakespeare class, I was taught that Shakespeare would never have known any Jewish people, never would have seen an African, would not have known what other races or religions looked like or acted like. That seems not to be the case at all. So there may have been, you know, audience members who were Black and Jewish and, um, and you know, uh, Muslim, etc. Um, so, but I think what the the playwrights were trying to depict was a world that was expanding and diverse And some of that is part of storytelling, as you say, and some of it does veer towards um, caricature. Um, So, I mean, I think just just as like any, uh, the plethora of uh, representations in film and television today include both storytelling and caricature, I think the same is true in in the early modern period. But what I wanted to ask following on from that is, you know, we know there are um, people of color in London at this time, all these parts are the black characters for white actors. Yes. So why don't we see any black actors treading the boards of the Elizabethan stage? Yeah, we uh, we don't know for sure. Um, what we do know is that there were Africans employed in many of the um, noble and aristocratic households. Uh, um, so, for example, John Blank, who, who was a black trumpeter in uh, Henry the Eighth, I know he's by Henry the Eighth. Sure, employed him, yeah, <laughs> and and may have been employed before that as well. Um, so there were, you know, there were black entertainers. We don't think that they were on the stage, but we don't know for sure. Uh, So far, the evidence has not revealed that to us. But what we do think as of right now was that the Renaissance secular theater was a place where white men, white Englishmen, were playing both women and non-white characters. So the idea of acting was a white male endeavor. And part of what I'm thinking through is that performing Blackness became a white endeavor as well. And that's part of the longer history that leads us into minstrelsy in the 19th century. 
I, I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, seeing as to some you're called the Othello Whisperer, what you think of Othello particularly, because some would say that's the role for Black actors in Shakespeare, but I wonder if there's also an argument there that it's a Black part, but it's not a Black role, it's, it's a Black part written for white actors. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's important to remember that for us living in 2021, um, Othello for us has been primarily a role for Black actors, but that's a recent phenomenon. Uh, And uh, I mean, like from the 1980s on. So this is only a 40-year history um, (laughs) where it's been only Black actors who play this part. That's just very recent It was a part, we think, written for Richard Burbage, the great um, tragedian who worked at at Shakespeare's Theatre. And it was a part that then was played by great um, older white actors for centuries. Um, We know that the first Black actors to play Othello probably, although there might be earlier instances, but were probably at the African Theater in New York in the 1820s. Um, And that's James Hewlett and then Ira Aldridge, the famous um, American actor who went to England and made his fame in Eastern Europe in the 1830s, 40s, 50s. Um, He he was like kind of the first famous Black um, Othello and then it wasn't until 100 years later with Paul Robeson. And, and for many, Paul Robeson was the first Black Othello, although he wasn't, right? We have this older history. Um, but there were critics writing about his performances in the 30s, 40s, and 50s um, saying, oh my God, it's as if I'm experiencing this play anew. This is a play that was written for a Black man to play. But that's just not the case. <laughs> It wasn't written for a Black man to play. And I think um, I've been called the Othello Whisperer because I get called in to work with actors of color now who have most of their lives aspired to play this great large role. And when they get to play it, they experience a kind of um, emotional breakdown because actually the largest part is Iago's. Um, (laughs) And by and large, this is a play that has been directed by white men. The white male director ends up spending most of his time working with the white male actor who's playing Iago, and the Black actor who's playing Othello ends up feeling left out, that there's this kind of weird power dynamic. And then once the play run goes into production, it can often happen that the audience is on Iago's side. And the audience, by and large, in the UK and in the US, is primarily older and white still. So there's this weird um, kind of psychic split. Here's a part that I've always aspired to, and I'm feeling um, I'm feeling vulnerable, weak, and uh, traumatized by it. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a really intriguing one in terms of. In Shakespeare's time, because we've talked about there were a lot of people occur in London in that era. Do you have any knowledge of what their reactions to seeing black parts played by white people? No, we don't. I mean, this is like, you know, this is the archive that we're hoping we can find at some point. But no, as of right now, 
Um, we don't know what their reactions would have been. We don't know, like, we know that the the Globe and the other theaters were very interactive, that the audience was talking to the actors, that it wasn't like we experience theater now where you sit silently. So it'd be interesting to imagine that a Black audience member or a Muslim audience member would yell out, that's not how it really is, <laughs> but, but we don't have that evidence. But <laughs> maybe we'll find that, right? In someone's clo- you know closet in their country home, they've got these diaries that we need. <laughs> um, there's another performance mode in Elizabethan England you write about, which is essentially a form of exhibitionism. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I'm working off of a great scholar, Dimpna Callahan's um, argument that there are kind of two modes of representing um, Black um, characters in the Renaissance. And one is this kind of like mimetic, you know, putting on racial prosthetics and performing as if you're a Black person. And the other is this um, exhibition mode where you've got um, these kind of entertainers at the uh, in the aristocratic households um, that were um, there to kind of display their bodies. And um, there are accounts of, of Africans being uh, used to pull in uh, tables of food at, <laughs> at um, weddings and stuff. So again, like, just a, a show of, of, of power and, ex- and exhibiting their bodies. And that that's a kind of strange uh, dynamic in which uh, Blackness isn't allowed to be owned by the, the Black person themselves, right? So like you're either putting on makeup and performing them or you're just wanting their bodies to be displayed. So that's a, a very disempowering uh uh, position uh, set up in the Renaissance. And when we get in towards the 19th century, I think you said right at the beginning, we get blackface minstrelsy. And that seems like a much more insidious proposition again. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think this is the argument that has been made by scholars in the past that minstrelsy is a completely different performance mode and, as you say, more insidious. Um, and in many ways it is, right? Because in the, we think it started in the 1830s. Um, T.D. Rice is often credited as being the kind of father of blackface min- the blackface minstrel performance tradition. Um, he says that he watched an enslaved man um, working in a barn and he uh, was older and infor- infirmed in his legs and was singing a song and kind of like hobbling along, sort of dancing. And Rice says that he tried to imitate that song and dance um, and for comedic purposes, right, to make fun of this enslaved person and and how he was behaving. And that kind of gave birth to minstrelsy as a performance genre, right? And it's one that's based on comedy. Uh, It's based on uh, kind of denigrating enslaved people, or uh, recently freed people, um, it's, um, you know, making them sound uneducated or um, aspiring to positions and power that they are not entitled to, right? So, it, and it 
was initially a one-person show that was done between other performances and then grew into being these kind of larger companies of performers with a full kind of slate of, of routines and characters. Um, and we get the Mammy figure from this and the Dandy figure from this. Um, and so a lot of scholars have argued that this is a, you know, kind of a break and a new form of, of uh, 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 that denigrates Blackness. I think it's important to r- understand Blackface minstrelsy as part of a continuum that comes from Blackface that we know is at least um, as medieval from the medieval period, but really came to birth in the Renaissance. Um, because it's the I, the continuum is that performing Blackness is a white property, that Black people don't get to perform themselves, that this is always something that is done by white people. And it can either be done, as you said earlier, like to like, are we just exploring different types of characters in these plots or are we making fun of them? It's all of that. It doesn't matter whether it's celebratory or denigrating. The the power dynamic is that white people assume that performing Blackness is a white property. And just to pick up something you said there, do you see that a connecting line then from Shakespeare's era Blackface to minstrelsy? Absolutely. There's a straight line. And and uh and I mean very straight line. The most perf- one of the most performed plays in early 19th century America was Othello. And T.D. Rice, the father of blackface minstrelsy, did a minstrel show of Othello. So yes, there is a direct line from Shakespeare's Renaissance blackface characters straight through to blackface minstrelsy in 19th century America. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There isn't a correlation or equivalency between blackface and whiteface. And I think that's because the power structure is so different that there's never the assumption that black people are entitled to playing white characters in white prosthetics. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One, one fact that cropped up in your book, which kind of it caught my attention, was the Laurence Olivier performance of Othello, which is... 1964. <laughs> exactly, and we're in the same period as the Black Power Movement and <laughs> civil rights, and he's there in blackface. Um, so it, it's impossible really to talk about blackface and minstrelsy without moving into race relations in the US. My question here is, does one drive the other in one direction or are they feeding off each other at this time? Uh, definitely feeding off of each other. I mean, I, I feel like that's that's the the power of performance, that it both reflects and creates modes of thinking about race, right? So, like, it, it, it's a feedback loop and a sort of echo chamber um, in performance. Uh, Laurence Olivier's 64 um, performance of Othello that was first at the National Theater and then got filmed in 1965, uh, you know, literally he talks about, in his autobiography, he talks about how he followed a recent... Uh, West Indian immigrants in London to th- see how they walked and how they talked and that he deliberately changed the timbre of his voice so that it could sound more like a Black man's and that he he kind of, the way he struts around the stage, he says, was an imitation of the Windrush generation. And, uh, <laughs> like, and then he also talks about how he personally developed the makeup pattern that he applied. And he he's very specific about like, it's, I forget, I think it's like max factor number, whatever, over another. And then he used a chiffon cloth to polish his body and that he did it over his entire body, entire body. <laughs> so this is happening at the same moment, 64, 65, as the black power movement is happening and the black arts movement is happening in the U.S., The film is released. It gets great acclaim, wonderful reviews. All of the principal actors are nominated for Academy Awards. But there were a few (laughs) reviewers who who say explicitly, I wondered, one reviewer says, I wondered when he was going to whip out his banjo and sing Mammy. So there wasn't, it wasn't completely unfathomable that his straight, high, Shakespearean performance of Othello, that that was not related also to the minstrel tradition. They understood that even in 1964 and 5. And I feel like we should probably highlight as well that minstrelsy, even though it's associated with the US, it isn't only in the US at this time. It does export. No, and I, this is one thing that I think makes um, Brits a little uneasy, <laughs> was that actually... Um, you know, there's not what, even though I said before that 
T.D. Rice is often credited as being the father of, of minstrelsy. There is not one father. There's many fathers. Several of them were English. And one was Charles Matthews, who did these famous um, one-man shows. They're called At Homes, where his, his kind of trick was that he could very rapidly, in succession, switch from different characters with different accents. And so he like famously went from being a French woman to a kind of Cockney man to a Scottish older woman. And like he could do this kind of quick accent and kind of almost look as if he was transforming his body as well. Um, he um, was looking for new material when he went to New York in 1824. And that's where he, he wrote, he discovered Black Gentry. And his new show in 1824 was called A Trip to America, where he incorporated um, what I think we can only assume is the kind of precursor to minstrelsy, where he really made fun of, of Black people and how they sounded and how they looked. So I think we have to say that minstrelsy is as much English as it is American. And certainly when minstrelsy as a performance genre blossomed later in the 19th century. It was very popular in the UK. And as many of your listeners probably remember, if they're a little bit older, um, there was a television show on until 1978 that was a minstrel television show. (laughs) We've mentioned a few names throughout the course of this conversation so far. Are there any individual stories you think we should talk about which say more about the wider narratives at play here? I mean, I I think a, an interesting counter-narrative is Ira Aldridge, the first famous um, Black American performer who did scenes from Shakespeare um, and did them in whiteface when he was performing as King Lear and Macbeth. Um, and the audiences in London and in Eastern Europe often praised his acting and they really liked it when he did scenes from Othello. But in, in, in England in particular, when he did his whiteface performances, they thought it didn't work. And I think that's, that's important because um, there isn't a correlation or equivalency between blackface and whiteface. And I think that's because the power structure is so different that there's never the assumption that Black people are entitled to playing white characters in white prosthetics. Like that happens occasionally. And Marvin McAllister, a great scholar, has a a whole book on on whiteface that's quite quite wonderful. Um, But I don't think that that's, it's not ever the same thing as Blackface. And, And the reaction that Ira Aldridge got to his um, Macbeth and and King Lear was one of like curiosity and also like maybe you're going a little too far. <laughs> that uh, recalls what you were saying earlier about performing blackness still being a white property rather than yes. And and we don't have and black actors and 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 when I say black, I, I do mean like kind of I'm just going to use that as a blanket term for you know actors of color in general. Like we don't we don't have a performance property that is our own, whether it's blackness or whiteness. And I think that's the struggle f- 
you know, right now for actors, that there isn't a way um, that Black people feel entitled to even own their own performances. I mean, some of these protean white actors, they, they seem to get quite famous and yes. well-off from them. Does. I mean, presumably reading between the lines from what you've said, the Black actors in whiteface, they didn't get anywhere near that level of acclaim. No, in fact, they get derision, right? So if if white actors in blackface are praised for being protean and shape-shifting, uh, black actors in whiteface are uh, derided for overstepping. So, yeah, <laughs> that's that. And I think that's probably my next big project is tracing tracing that line of how virtuosity in acting is is linked to performing blackness. One thing I didn't expect in this book was to find a reference to Dartmoor Prison in Devon <laughs> being this bastion of black stage performance. Could you tell us a bit about that? Dartmoor is like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so during the War of 1812, um, Americans uh, were uh, captured by the British Admiralty and imprisoned in Dartmoor. Uh, which had been built just a few years earlier. And Dartmoor, which still exists, um, is organized in, I forget if it's seven or eight equal-sized buildings. And one of the buildings um, in the War of 1812 um, became the Black Prison because the white American sailors who were captured um, objected to being housed with Black prisoners. So the English <laughs> prison officials were like, fine, one of the buildings will become a Black prison. Um, so number four at Dartmoor became the prison building that housed Black American prisoners during the War of 1812. And the prisoners at the time um, were able to, you know, kind of entertain themselves in various ways. And one of the most popular ways was by putting on plays. And apparently there had been French prisoners there first who had come up, who had created costumes and sets that they then sold to the Black American prisoners. And the Black American prisoners then proceeded to put on the most popular plays, including Shakespeare's. And one of the famous figures at Dartmoor was a, a Black American named Richard Crafus who all the the three accounts that we have from diaries of uh, of American prisoners of war um, said that he was like over seven feet tall. like he was some some sort of incredibly um, tall figure. and he was often called King Dick or Big Dick. and he was often seen with smaller white prisoners as his kind of companions. And we think that he played, Juliet in whiteface at Dartmoor <laughs> in 1814. Like it blows the mind. <laughs> but one of the one of the white American prisoners wrote in his diary that he thought it was incredibly unseemly to have this large Juliet, this black Juliet in white face, and that it's normal for um female parts to be played by male actors as they did in the Elizabethan time. These are his words. Um, but that it was unseemly to see a Blackamoor play Juliet in white makeup. So one of the big strands in your book is, of course, how 
blackface and black story continue to influence modern television and film industries. I wonder if you could unpick that for us a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think I say it in the book, but I've been when I've been giving interviews recently, I, I talk about blackface as being the ultimate zombie performance mode. You think it's dead, <laughs> and then suddenly it just comes back to life. <laughs> like, and you're like, why won't it die? Like, it's you know, blackface has died several deaths and has been resurrected at several moments, and one of the more disturbing resurrections is in the 21st century. And uh, there are so many examples on on, uh, American television. They range the gamut, right? Like from Jimmy Kimmel performing as Carl Malone in a a very derogatory fashion, even though he says Carl Malone is his favorite basketball player. It's, It's not a complimentary performance. To like someone like Fred Armisen, who performed as President Barack Obama on Saturday Night Live. And some people will say, well, there's a total difference between Armisen putting on a little bit of makeup to be, you know, President Obama. It's not Barack Obama. It's not like that's derogatory. But again, the assumption is that they have a right to perform Black people in Black makeup. There's not the equivalent. There's not like a whole host of black actors on late night television in whiteface. <laughs> like there's one or two examples. And this feels like a natural lead into another theme you pick up in the book, which is that of white innocence. Yes. In relation to blackface. How, how do you see that fitting into that narrative? Yeah, and I think Jimmy Kimmel's a really good example, right? So like he says, he's like, oh my God, I, like he's performed as Carl Malone time and time again. A kind of making him a malaprop, um, making him so that he, he he his grammar is challenged. Like it's it's totally in a minstrel tradition, right? But Jimmy Kimmel says of of this, I love Carl Malone. He's my hero. I grew up idolizing him. There's nothing wrong with this. This is innocence, right? Like the <laughs> the the logic is that I have a pure heart. My intentions are good. And so it cannot be harmful because my intentions are pure. And I think what I want to say is like, actually, it doesn't really matter what your intentions are. If you assume that you have a right to perform in blackface, that's the problem. <laughs> and, and you know, all, almost every single actor or political figure from Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, who has been in blackface at least three times that we know of, to um, Governor Ralph Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, who also performed in blackface, they always say either, I didn't know the horrible history. Okay, fine, maybe you didn't. Or, and or, but I was doing this to celebrate someone, whether it's Michael Jackson or, um, uh, you know, any any host of other performers. (laughs) Um, They say, I'm celebrating that person. And again, the roots of that, logic are that there is a certain kind of white innocence that should absolve you from either having to know the history or from, you know, understanding that this is potentially harmful. Um, And there is not the equivalent for Black people. There is no Black innocence (laughs) that we can rely on to say, oh, I just slipped into whiteface because I love, name, person, Madonna. (laughs) Like, that doesn't happen. (laughs) Like we don't, that's not how we're raised. (laughs) 
our, our society does not tell us we're entitled to do that. <laughs> and so with that in mind, what would you like readers to take away from this book? And also, is there anything in this kind of conversation that we haven't touched on that we should have done? Um, I think the takeaway for me is that I, I hope that I've written the book in a very accessible fashion. Like this is not a book for other academics. This is for your neighbors and your friends and your teachers and um, your children, right? So that like it can start a dialogue about white innocence maybe and also what do we want to do going forward? Um, I think it's pretty interesting to debate right now the difference between something like 30 Rock, where Tina Fey, there are four episodes of 30 Rock that employed blackface. And Tina Fey, in the moment of reckoning after the murder of George Floyd, said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. We're going to expunge these from the viewing platforms. They're gone. And she said, because I don't want any child who loves comedy to inadvertently be harmed by these episodes. Okay, so that's one version. Disney has taken a totally different stance where they are putting kind of trigger warning labels at the beginning of their older shows that have kind of racist stereotypes saying, this is part of our history. We're so sorry, uh, but we hope that it inspires a conversation among us as a society. So I think it's interesting to debate those two stances. And, and I hope the book is a way that kind of allows us to have a more informed debate about those about those two different positions. That was Diana Thompson. Her book exploring the themes discussed in this episode is called Blackface and was published by Bloomsbury in April 2021. You can find a link in the description of this episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back on Friday when Alison Weir will be discussing Henry VIII's final wife, Catherine Parr.